Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thanks for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Doug Bame, and if you're not familiar with Doug, he is an American record producer and Grammy Award-winning recording engineer. He's worked with a lot of different artists in the pop, indie, and rock genres. He's worked with people such as The Vines, Katy Perry, Fall Out Boy, Miley Cyrus, Tokyo Police Club, Girls, and a whole bunch more. And in this episode, we get into a really great conversation about understanding the things that truly make a difference in your recordings. And... Not getting sucked into a lot of the marketing hype that a lot of these plugin companies will make you believe. Um, you know, whether, whether it's plugin companies or gear companies, you know, there's so many external sources that say, you need this gear and it's going to make you better. And I, I know that we've covered that on the podcast before, but I think in this episode here, it's different because Doug gets into a lot more about truly understanding what you need to do with the resources that you already have. And I think that that's really important because a lot of people have heard that before, but People are still feeling stuck because they don't know what to do. So in this episode, Doug definitely gets into ways that you can analyze music more thoroughly and come up with a better game plan to get better results with your own music. Now, we also get into a great discussion about guitar tones in this conversation because Doug has amazing guitar sounds. Like It's the thing of his mixes that, to me, are the most impressive. Like His guitars always sound so big, so wide, so clear, and they leave a lot of clarity in the center of a mix for everything else to shine. So I'm just a really big fan of his guitars, and so wanted to dig into you know, what goes into that and what his process is. So in this episode, he definitely gets into a lot of those details, and he gives great answers that I think are very thorough. So I know that if you're someone who is struggling to get your mixes to the point where they're sounding better, or if you're struggling to come up with a clearer game plan for what should I be doing to get better results, this episode is going to be really helpful. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Doug Bame, thank you so much for being on the Master Your Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Good. Thanks for having me. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background and some of the projects you've worked on, that kind of stuff, can you give us a little bit of that brief history of who you are, what you do, ultimately how you got into music production and all the cool stuff you're working on these days? I mean, I, I do all kinds of things, as most people these days, you know, you, you wear a lot of hats and started out probably like a lot of people, a kid wondering, you know, how to, to make a living doing music and wondering whether it was going to be playing guitar or drums or getting behind the console and, and doing stuff. And I was lucky enough to, I lived in Ohio, Cincinnati growing up. And not, you know, there was, there is a music scene. I remember the big band at, during my time was the Afghan Wigs, which, you know, Greg Dooley, and they, they had quite a little following. That was big for, for Cincinnati. I think that was probably in the, the late 80s. And I had a buddy that was, you know, an amazing drummer, and just he knew that Cincinnati was not the place to do it. And... And he really wanted to come to L.A. That's where I live. That's where I'm at now. And uh, go to music school. I think it was MI, which is a you know place that a lot of people end up. And I just said, I'm going. You know, we had just graduated from high school. Who knows? I had no idea what I was going to do. Didn't even. <laughs> I don't even think I was thinking about it. Just living day to day, having a good time. But when I heard he was going to L.A., I just went, yes that that's what I want to do. And, you know, we got a big truck, moved to LA and here we go. I've been here ever since. I think that was 1989 and, you know, been all over the world, but I, I love LA. I think it's definitely the music capital as far as I can see. Sure. With technology, you can go wherever you want, but this is, and was at least at the time the the peak of making rock and roll records, which is what I set out to do and kind of made it happen. Love it. So prior to going, so you went to MI prior to that, had you had any experience like working in like recording audio at all? Or was it just like, we'll get, we'll figure it out once we get there. 
I I didn't go to MI. He oh, was a drummer okay, and wanted to go to MI to to be a drummer. And I just wanted to get out of Cincinnati and didn't know what I was going to do. I had always done, you know, I was a hack guitar player and always loved music. And I would kind of do live sound for his band when they would do little house parties. And, you know, when you're in high school, you just would do whatever you could. And always had a notion. I always liked tinkering with things, whether it was my cassette deck or you know, a stereo that didn't work. I, I didn't know what it was going to lead into, but, you know, as a kid, you kind of do these little things and then it most times ends up leading you down the path. So I just came to LA because I hadn't, I was, what else are you going to do? I didn't know what LA sounded like a fantastic place to go. And, <laughs> and it turned out to be right. And, you know, once I got here, I think there was a magazine called the LA weekly and I, I saw an ad for a school that was become a recording engineer. And to be honest, school and me didn't really match that well. Sure, I I was I did all right, but the idea of going to college and continuing down the that path didn't really strike me as something I wanted to do, but anyway, I saw this ad and at the time, who was the president in 1989 can't even remember but they had all kinds of programs that you could get grants to go to school any kind of school and they just said the school you know they were like come in you won't have to pay anything like, <laughs> what you know my parents are going it sounds too good to be true it, yeah, it is what is this shady place yeah what is this shady place i went in it wasn't shady and i think i went for one semester and they they did they set up all the grants they were making the money who knows how much money they were making but at after talking to people and figuring out they all even after you graduated from this two-year program you were going to have to become an intern at a studio and i went huh i don't think this is the way i'm going to go so after about three months i quit the school and went to a studio, I think it was called Studio 55, not there anymore, it was on the Paramount lot, like White Christmas, and classic, iconic, you know, uh, recordings from, you know, the 20s, 30s, 40s, recorded there, and I just said, hey, what's it going to take to get me in? And they said, you're on, can you make coffee? I said, (laughs) yep. Can you clean toilets? Like, yeah, unfortunately I can't. And uh, that's where it started. I bailed on school and started being an intern right off the bat. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a really interesting story. And I think it's so true that like, a lot of people have this expectation, you know, like we've kind of been beaten beaten to death, like in the school system that, you know, you, you go to high school and then you go to university, college, whatever, and that gets you the job. And like, you're like entitled to a good job when you graduate. Whereas like the music industry has been completely backwards and it's like, no, like you're going to start from the ground up. You're not even going to do the thing you like went to school for. You're just going to clean toilets. And if we like you enough, we'll let you eventually into the room and watch us do our work, you know? So it's like, you don't need to, like, it's good to know that knowledge of, I guess, like, you know, how to, how to record, but you're going to probably learn it in the actual studio at, at some point if you're proving yourself worthy of it. Right. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, the people, you come and and basically the first thing I said was, I'm going to clean toilets better than everybody else here and, you know, get into the room fast. And the person that was the main client at Studio 55 at the time was Jack Joseph Puig. And I don't know if you know him or not, icon, like huge. And in my world, I even knew who he was. I was like, wow, jellyfish? I, I like that record. And, you know, I did everything I could to get in the room. And he, you, you just didn't get in the room. <laughs> like you, gotta, was, you have to earn your way in that room. <laughs> I, absolutely. And I just figured out, you know, the, the time of day when they wanted coffee. And when they were coming out to have coffee, I had their type of coffee ready. And they were like, huh, interesting. 
And pretty soon, I was taking the coffee into the room. They weren't even coming out. It was like, oh, it's 5.45. Like, I'd just be coming in, and nobody would look at me. Nobody would say anything, but I was in the room. And and then I just started helping the assistants, like, you know, during break time or whatever. I'd see them out cleaning up, wrapping cables. I'm like, all right, I'm going there. I'm not going to the big people. I'm going to the people that I can actually help and learn, you know, I need to learn how to wrap cables. Here we go. And so I would help. And what assistant wouldn't love an intern that helped them do the jobs that they absolutely loathed. And when you became an assistant, wrapping cables was, oh my gosh, it was just something you did not want to do. Like that was the worst. So you got in and pretty soon, you just kept inching towards <laughs> doing what you needed. I think I finally got Jack at one point. was like, hey, if you want, go ahead, sit in the corner. You know, feel free to watch what's happening. And he actually said, this is probably after three months, he goes, you know, tell the studio you quit. Just come in, start hanging out in the room. I was like, really? I just remember the day <laughs> I went, I'm not really going to be doing this stuff anymore. Sorry. And they're like, wow, that sucks. Cause you were, you know, you were on your way. And then I still started coming in every day and they were like, what <laughs> the fuck is happening? It's kind of amazing. But Jack didn't literally talk to me or any of the clients for months after I was just sitting in the room. Like nobody, nobody <laughs> talked to me. I never said anything. I just watched. It was kind of an amazing process. That's amazing. Well, yeah, I mean, definitely, uh, yeah, it, it, it to have someone like that in your corner who's like at least giving you that that way in is uh, is definitely a big thing to have for sure. Oh, without a doubt, and he, you know he's one of the greatest engineers of all time. He learned from Glenn Johns, and you know it's like a it was different back then. That's the one thing that I do miss about today's culture is you know you you had a uh, what do they call it when. You know, you were going to be a blacksmith or something. You were the, what, what do they call that? You were, you were going to learn how to do it. I mean, somebody would just take you under their wing. It's like, oh, you're going to be an engineer. And I just remember that's what I wanted to do. And then I realized, wow, I'm going to be an engineer. Like, these people are going to help me. But, you know, you just had to work your ass off and, they didn't pick people willy-nilly. Like they, they saw something for sure. And I think it was just not that I was going to have good ears. They just knew that I was a hard worker and that I wanted it. Mm -hmm. So then to go from being the guy that is sitting in the corner quietly to actually getting the chance to start implementing some of the stuff that you've been shadowing, what was that process like? I, I remember at one point, it was Jack and I in the room. The assistant was off doing something, and he goes, <laughs> it still makes me laugh. He goes, hey, I have a patch. Are you ready to do it? And I went, yeah, absolutely. And I clearly didn't, you know, I've never touched a patch bay. Didn't even, I'd looked in it many times after the sessions, but I, I didn't really know signal flow that well. Or he's like, all right. I don't even remember what it was. Put this 1176 on the insert of blah. And I grabbed the patch bay and I, I must have been standing there. I don't know how long. It seemed like forever. Not <laughs> doing anything. And he goes, hey, do you know what you're doing? I said, no. And he goes, I think that's the most impressive thing about what just happened. He, he was not mad. He said, you admitting that you didn't know what you were doing before you fucked anything up is the way I want it to happen. And I went, you know, cause you don't, you don't know if you should say, you know what? Yeah, I got this. And then try to figure it out. I just clearly didn't know what I was going to do. And I just fessed up. I was like, no, I don't, I don't know. And, and he was stoked. He said, here, let me show you. And, and that's kind of the way the relationship started. It was great. That's amazing. From a single patch bay, it turned this entire career. <laughs> kind of. I mean, what else? No, it's amazing. Because now, yeah, like I feel like these days, I mean, the industry is so different now, and there are definitely fewer and fewer 
like runner or intern positions yeah. available. But I feel like so many people are going into it now with this like knowledge already of you know I, I know the software or I know some of the basic That's tools right. that kind of stuff. So it's uh, I still think that like a lot of the people that are in that position of power, I guess you could say, like they still want people to just come in. Like, be quiet, yeah. don't pretend you know anything about the gear, let's show you my way kind of thing. Um, I still feel like that kind of old school mentality still exists, and, and and rightfully so to some degree. Like, you know, you don't want to mess with somebody's session just, you know, without knowing how they do things, right? Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, that, like I said, that was a long time ago, and and I see how today's, you know, learning on your own can be more conducive to getting where you're trying to go faster. Like I, there's some of these kids that you run across, they're fucking good. They are amazing engineers. And you ask them, have they ever worked in a studio? No, (laughs) (laughs) nope, haven't. How old are you? I'm 22. I'm like, okay, all right, you're doing it. And they just learn it on their own through tutorials and, and different ways that I just wasn't good at learning through a tutorial i was the type that had to be in there getting my hands dirty doing it or i wasn't a good learner today's kids they can learn a different way and it's kind of impressive absolutely yeah it's just the information is so accessible so people can learn it and you know like we were talking about uh earlier it's just like the home studio market has become so easy to get into and to just like start getting your feet wet with it and so people are just going all in and you know i think the idea is like oh if i can make sound if i can make it sound decent in my house it should be able to apply to a bigger studio and and some sometimes that's the path right oh it it is the path and that's kind of where it it ended up for me i ended up you know being an assistant engineer at at sunset sound and you know you could get time to record demos and i just remember and i still tell this to people all the time when they're trying you know i get friends or kids of friends or like how do you how do you make it sound good and i go you reference things you know if you know if you know what you're trying to do that's half the battle and that's what i you know when i was doing demos for bands and i remember getting done with a mix and going all right your heart kind of sinks because you know i'm going to compare this you know, on these incredible mains at, at Sunset Sound with a record that's out right now that I love the way it sounds. And I just remember your my heart dropping in the eye. You put it on, you switch back, and you're like, oh, God, I'm nowhere <laughs> close. To, you know, but then you start checking out things individually, like, wow, it's, I feel it's the bottom end that I am just not anywhere close on on this thing. You know, the guitars, yeah, they kind of sound... It sounds close to what these rock records are doing. And I was like, it's the bottom end. I just, I am not, not anywhere close. And you just start referencing and you start doing things. And you just start trying different things. And you start asking people about bottom end. Like, what, what is it? Is it the miking technique? And a lot of times I, it did come down to the mic technique. And just figuring out how to get the bottom end to start translating like these big records. And the moral to this story is I tell that to people now all the time. Like, hey, Doug, what do you think of this mix? And I go, well, what are you trying to make it sound like? You know, people are like, well, mine, I want it to sound like me. And I'm like, yeah, okay. But it's got to, you know, it's got to come from somewhere. We all, we all started with somebody as our hero, whether you're a drummer or a singer it just doesn't come from nowhere. Sorry, you're, I don't think we're that good. So <laughs> compare it. Put up the song that you want it to sound like and just start honing in on different aspects of it. Listen to the top, middle, bottom, and just see what what's happening. And people go, huh, but that's hard. I'm like, yeah, but my words aren't going to really mean anything if you're not hearing what what you're trying to accomplish here. So... I, I always feel like reference, and I still do it. Like yeah, I'll same. get done with a mix, and I think it's great, and I'll be like, hmm, I want this to sound like blah, 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 and I'll put it on, and you just go, ah, 
or whoa. <laughs> I got some work to do. Glad I didn't send this one out yet. You yeah. know, so that's kind of the moral to this whole I was leading to referencing anyway. Yeah, no, I, I love that you brought that up, though, because I think that it is such an important thing. And a lot of people like it, references have been mentioned so many times on this podcast, but I still hear people all the time that have never used them, never tried it, don't know what to do with them. Right. And it's like they just listen to their music against these other songs and then they're like, Ah, crap, my stuff sucks compared to these guys. They must just have some fancy gear, fancy room, whatever. That's why it sounds good. And they just give up. Whereas, like, I love the approach that you said there where it's like, no, let's reverse engineer this a little bit. You know, let's listen to the low end, the top end, all that kind of stuff and figure out, is it the miking? Is it, you know, know, the tone or whatever? And I think that, like, it's references are such a powerful, underutilized tool that, like, once you start doing that and you start really getting deep into analyzing things and, and reverse engineering, then... All of a sudden, you're going to notice bigger improvements because you're paying attention to those little details that go a long way. I still feel like I listen to references like every five minutes, like I, you know, like just for because I feel like my ears get so used to hearing the same thing over and over again so quickly that I just need that extra little calibration tool to just flip on for two seconds and I'm back to where I need to go. You know, absolutely, and I do too. So you know, that's I don't I don't know anybody that doesn't. You know, they might not say they do, but. I just think it's because you're right. You get sucked into this. You know, you you listen to the same thing for four hours. There's no way that your brain hasn't just shifted into some other spot where you think it sounds perfect. And and maybe it does at that moment. But I don't know. I always need a slap in the face every now and then to (laughs) get me back on track. For sure. And I think the other big part of references, too, is that it allows you to know what mixes that translate should sound like on your monitors because so many people just mix to make it sound great in their room and then they lose all that translation when they take it to their car or whatever so you sometimes need that reference to just be like okay you shouldn't have as much low end as like you know sure it sounds cool in your room to have that low end but it doesn't actually work very well in the grander scheme of things you know like stuff like that is is so important to to hear i i'm glad that you you brought up monitors because you know, most of my friends are professionals and I'll have conversations with people and they're literally changing their monitors every six months. Like, wow, I'm using these, you know, I was on Proax, now I'm on whatever this, and I'm going, or they'll even have three sets of monitors in their room and they're switching back and forth all the time. And I go, I, I don't even get how you can do that. Just pick one, any one, doesn't matter cheap, expensive, you start learning what those monitors do. And once you figured it out, you're, that's half the battle. Like figuring out what your room sounds like. You said it and you're 100% right. Like just figure out what it does and when it translates. So I just, people are constantly just <laughs> making their life difficult <laughs> by changing the monitors, switching. You know, in the studio, we had two sets. We would have a near field, which typically in the beginning was NS10s, which I don't know why we use those. I think half of my hearing loss is because of NS10s. And then <laughs> you would have mains, which something that when smaller studios started popping up, I missed mains from a large studio, you know, the ocean waves, the sunset sounds more than anything, because that's... I don't know. I just loved making records on the mains. You just, they're not in your face. You have this full sound spectrum. So just switching from, you know, all these different monitors, moral to the story. I just think you find a pair, you figure out how it works. You stick with them. Yeah, I agree. It's like, have yeah, just get a pair that like has a pretty decent range you can hear some low end you can hear the mid-range you can hear the top end you know that's that's it like i for me like i i only recently i've i've shit on ns10s for my entire life i just every time i hear them i hate them and i don't know i finally decided to buy a pair recently because i was just Ah. like i was like okay i'm gonna just cave and just like let's see if i can actually i always listen to them in other (laughs) studios and like you know they always sound like garbage in those and i'm like let's let's just i want to understand these speakers better and yeah, I still think they sound like shit, but you know, like, oh, but man. but it's it's uh it's interesting to like learn how a speaker sounds. Like I I always knew that those speakers sounded like shit. I still think that, 
and I have to make my mixes sound like shit on them because that's how it's supposed to translate, you know, and that, that's kind of the way I look at it. It's, you know, that's the sound of it. I'm not trying to make those sound better. <laughs> you know, we literally, well, I know it seemed like everybody that was using them in the nineties the and two thousands, we would go to the side and we would see how far out the woofer was coming out of the speaker to check the bottom end. That's how we, if you went over and you looked around while it, if that kick drum wasn't making that woofer just jump out of that thing, it wasn't right. That's how you would check the bottom end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's like no low end. Like when I when I first put them in my room, I I mean, I, I knew that they had no low end, but I, I had always, every I feel like most of the studios I work out that have them have a sub. So I was always kind of used to hearing some low end. And then as soon as I brought them in my room, I was like, it's like I know that these aren't supposed to sound great, but there's zero low end in them. You know? <laughs> just look at the woofer. Yeah. <laughs> That's how you do. If it's not just jumping out, you know it's wrong. But I... I was hoping you would ask me what speakers I use because I, I think this is a testament to, you know, people that don't have a lot of money. And I've been using these for 15 years, and that's the Mackie HR824. Yeah, those are great. I love those. Passive radiator. They've got two amps in them, probably, I don't know, 800 bucks a piece. I don't know how much they are now. I've been using them for so long. and not super expensive. So, mm -hmm. but full range. I just think I can hear everything on them. That's all you need. You don't need something fancy. I, my main monitors have been like KRK Rocket 8s for the longest time. And I, I know a lot of people hate those because they got too much low end in them, but I like it. I can hear it, yeah. you know? And it, it's funny. Like, I, one of my local music stores, one day they got some, I, can, I don't even know what it was. It was, uh, I think they were like the like the top of line ATCs, and they're like, "Oh, Mike, you gotta come check these out. Everything sounds incredible on them." And I put one of my mixes on, and I was like, "Yeah, my mix sounds exactly how I expect it to sound on these." You know, and it's like because I learned these are what my speakers sound like, so that's right. It should still translate. So you know, I was like, "Great, you guys just saved me like twenty grand. I don't need to buy these." You know? <laughs> oh man, I mean, you want speakers that you want them to be the honest friend you've never had. That if they hype too much, you're getting it wrong. Like I. You have to work. You have to be ready to work hard to get it to where it's supposed to be or else, you know, people, like you said before, they they pull up a mix and all of a sudden it sounds good and you're like, mm, no, that's the speaker making them sound good, which is fine, but it's not going to translate. You need something very flat and honest to help you work to get, to get where and figuring out how you like to work. I, in general, my mixes used to be really dark all the time just dark 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 so if you have bright speakers which a lot of them are i thought wow it sounds great and you didn't i couldn't do that like these mackies they're not super bright so you have to crank it up to make it sound right which worked for me and that's the other thing you have to figure out all these things are figuring out what works for you so whether it's the type of music or you know how the speakers are, it, it just, you have to find what you like and that's half the battle. Of course. Yeah. Agreed. You kind of mentioned like uh, workflow. I'm curious to know, like when it comes to starting a mix for you, like what is your general workflow or like, what's your typical approach to a mix? How do you, how do you go about starting that? It, it's different now than it was 10 years ago. What I used to do is clear, you know, they come into pro tool sessions and they, I just, cleared everything off right they're like well i left all this stuff on there and i get rid of that stuff i'm gonna get rid of everything and just start from scratch and what i kept finding was now that people have pro tools rigs and they have they've kind of grown to love the stuff that they've been doing for the last six months on a song so and you know it creating the the delay throw that they've absolutely loved. So I started going, huh, I'm going to keep some of this stuff and effects. And I would, you know, I would open up a session and I'd go, I don't, I don't have this delay. So if you really like it, print it and I'll use it. If you're not in love with it, <laughs> I'll do my own and kind of simulate some stuff and tweak it the way I have. And I just, now I just tell them right off the bat, print all your effects. 
<laughs> because I more times than not, they just couldn't get over something that they've been living with. And, you know, limiting, compressing, EQing, I, I listen pretty intensely to what they have, what they've been doing. And then, you know, I definitely will get rid of it and use my own plugins and kind of, and you, I don't usually have any, any problems with people with that, but you know, people fall in love with what they've been listening to on a lot of levels. And typically I found it's reverb and delay and different things that, you know, that's what they like. And I'm, I'm fine with making them happy and using what, what keeps them familiar with their mix and just making it bigger drums. Drums are the main thing. I hate to say it. Most of the time, all I have to do is put them in phase and <laughs> people go, wow, what you do to the drums? Like, well, I tell you, but I had to kill you. So that's like the big, the big thing that novices don't really get. And that's drum phase. Of course. And <laughs> so it's so true. Yeah. I mean, it, it's always a fine line with those rough mixes or those like sessions that you get from a client because it's like, well, how much do they actually know about this? You know, like how, how pro is this coming into me to begin with? And yeah, you know, yeah. how th there's that fine line, right. Of like, do you keep this or do you just replace it? <laughs> but I think you're right though. I think, I think effects are the things that people just get married to because they, it's like a part of that sound now, you know, it's yeah. like, you strip out all the delay and reverb from a guitar, it's going to sound very dry and dull, you know, compared to something that sounds really lush and whatever, right? So, you know, people just get married to those sounds. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you on that one there. Um, it's funny, I mean, you were talking about drums and how, like, those are, like, a, such a big part of it. But to me, like, when I listen to your mixes, the thing that stands out to me about your mixes is the sound and the size of your guitars. Like, your guitars, to me, are, like, that's my favorite quality of your mixes. Um and like they always just seem to be like really wide, really clear. Even if they're dirt, like even if they're distorted, they're, they're still very clear and articulate. Um, so I was curious to learn a little bit more about your guitar process, and you know if you have any tips for getting those big guitar sounds. I mixing is levels to me, and and a lot of times I think about the frequencies visually, right? So you kind of I visualize what is going to stay at the top and what is, you know, just down the line. You know, I'm making hand motions as, you know, you go from the top to the bottom and that's the way I look at. And as you, it's different when I record, when I record a band like Tokyo Police Club or another one that people really like that, that I did from top to bottom was the girls record, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And they say, well, how did you mix that? I go, well, I, I was mixing the whole time. Like by the time I get to the mixing phase, when I'm the engineer from the beginning to the end, the mixing takes very little time because it's already, as I'm recording, I'm, you're filling the holes as they need. And guitars, you know, they're, they're kind of amazing. I, I love guitars and that's what rock and roll used to be was you know it was guitars so how to record the guitar i typically use a 57 on almost all that's that's what i know that's really the only mic i ever use sometimes i'll have an 87 on there as well and kind of do a little blend but typically it's just a 57 people have tried to get have you tried the royer have you tried yeah i don't i don't know i don't need it. <laughs> Give me a 57. I EQ the guitar. You know, I move the mic around. Is it, you want more bottom end? Great. I'll move it closer and off to the side. Is it, you know, what are we looking for? And a lot of it comes to the miking. And that's kind of what starts the chain for me with guitars. And if, you know, if it's something that comes in, I basically do the same process. Just I visualize where the guitars are going to sit in the whole dynamic of the, the process. And then I like wide. I'm wide to me helps clear. It's all about clearing out space. Mm -hmm. So, and, and a lot of, I hear a lot of mixes these days and they're not that wide. They're, they're pretty, pretty narrow. 
in general. But when you have two guitars, I felt, you know, they have to be wide to allow that room for the bass and the vocal and that snare drum and, and the kick drum. So I, I go wide mm-hmm. most of the time. So in terms of getting that wide sound, is it just a matter of double tracking? Well, if you want to go wide, you need balance, right? Whether it's another guitar, you know, in the 90s and 2000s, we always had two guitars. Now, I, I rarely use a double guitar. You have something else. You have a keyboard or a shaker or just something to balance. And I still tend to go wide just because I, I'm used to that mm-hmm. and I like it. But even if it's not two guitars, it's, there's something else on the other side that helps balance it out. Gotcha. When you do do double tracking, do you are you the kind of person that will just like take two tracks of the exact guitar tone, guitar, that kind of thing? Or do you like switch it up for one side versus the other? Oh, it's always, I try to make it different okay. all the time. Different guitar, different amp. The mic stays the same. You want it to be different. The same just, you know, doesn't, doesn't work as well. I mean, yeah. you, you can just... I know we're on guitars, but I, I do that for room mics as well a lot of times. If I have a stereo, I want a stereo room mics, I'll make the two mics different just so that you have it. You don't even notice, but it, it makes a difference that that's really cool to me. And it makes it stand out in us. And it's subtle. Like a lot of people don't even know that, you know, the two room mics are different or the two guitars are different guitar. Yeah. Maybe a Telly on one side and a Les Paul on the other. It makes it big, I, I think. Rather than the same, different just keeps it adding character. That's interesting. And it's, uh, you know, I, I, f- I feel like when it comes to guitars, like most guitar players, they dial in their setting and it's like, that's the sound we want. And so you start with that first track being the sound a band wants and that sounds really good. And then when you get into that idea of doubling your guitar and trying to make it sound different, then it's like, well, how, how different do you actually go? You know, like, sure, switching up a guitar is like going to make it sound different, but are we trying to get it somewhat related? <laughs> you know, like, the, I think that's always like the, the, the thing that a lot of people aren't sure about. Well, no, and I, I'm not sure either. So you just try things and it, it's, it seems easy to me, but when it works, it's working. And if it doesn't work, you're like, that's just not working. That sounds, you know, it sounds weird. And I have a saying that if it sounds weird, it is. So try something else, (laughs) right? (laughs) Just try it. And you'll, you'll hear it when it does sound right. And that's kind of the beauty. And sometimes maybe you can't get away from that Les Paul, but the amp is slightly different. You know, you go from a, you know, a Marshall to a Fender, you know, you just, you mix it up some way that gives, gives the two sides character. Yeah. I love that. As far as uh, the width in a mix, do you ever experiment with any like stereo wideners or any of that kind of stuff? I do, but typically that ends up being on the reverb or a delay that I, if, if it goes with too much of the instruments, I tend to not like it. But you can put, you know, those spatializers that you get some reverb going way wide. It's it's cool and it's subtle. But you still mm-hmm. get the same effect rather than, you know, putting it on instruments that, I don't know, it just, it, it never really worked for me. For sure. And then, like, what's your take on compression with guitars? Because, you know, some people would say that, like, if you narrow down all the dynamics, then, like, it doesn't really feel like it pokes out. And I would assume the width would change as a result of that, too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I'm guilty of knocking the the character down many times on guitars because... You know, you want them loud. People, when the the volume wars started, and you know, they're like, "It's too loud." I'm going, if I could, if we could all turn our Marshall amps up to ten, we would. So they just sound better, but we can't all the time. So when I started, I really liked LA three A's on guitar. I just that just I don't know. It was a combination that I just couldn't get away from, and I, you know, now that. The plugins don't really have the same. That's the one thing that I haven't. Plugins typically translate pretty well. I can't. I can't really back the LA3As on plugins. Maybe I haven't tried the newer round, but I. I do think that I have 
sucked out the life of electric guitars by over compressing. But I, I like the sound of compression. I, I've always liked it. I think that's been the sound of rock and roll for a long time. And so we just kept pushing it and pushing it. But I, I do say that, yes, you can suck the life out of a guitar with over compression <laughs> for sure. Yeah. I feel like with, with electric guitars, compression is more about the character than it is like leveling it out sometimes. Because, I mean, if you're already going through a dirty amp, it's already kind of compressing the way out, you know? That's true. Yeah. <laughs> that's true, but that's what we do. I mean, I push it. That's that's what, you know, if you get to people, even kids, where they'll, you know, these some of these new mixes, I just go, how do they do that? Like, wow, it's incredible. It is just so tight and aggressive. Like, that is kind of amazing. So, I, you know, I've always been the type to try to push it like, let's keep going. Let's see how far we can push this until it's not cool. And sometimes you just, you miss. You miss the, the mark and you go too far. I just I always felt like going under the mark was worse to me than going over it. For sure. No, that makes sense. Well, you had talked about um, drum rooms and how you like to switch up the mics there. And that kind of ties me into something I was curious to ask you about, which was, um, you know, one record that I really do appreciate that you've worked on that I love the sound of is the Tokyo Police Club force field record. And what I love about that record is that, especially the drums, there's this really cool, like tight, but reflective sound all around it. And I just feel like it, it gives you like a sense of character, like you're almost in the room with the band. And I just, it, it's not like a big, long, drawn out, sustained sound. It's it's just kind of this, it's it's dry, but reflective kind of. I don't know how to, how to describe it other than that. But I'm curious to know, like, as far as the roominess of that record, um, do you remember if that was like more of an actual room sound or was that something that you might have messed around with in post? Uh, it, it's definitely room, room sounds. And we recorded that. I, I can't remember the studios, but we recorded at two two drum rooms and both of them were big. And it depends, you know, I would go, I'm a big fan of a big room, baffle, set up gobos, put parachutes over the top, do it, do whatever you can to make it sound like you want. And I, I was also, and during the tracking, I use uh, transient designers a lot now they're plugins that are pretty great but i had rack mounts and i would put those on the room because the timing the the decay of you know the room is so important to to making the room sounds and you i dial that in you just dial in those rooms and you i mash drum sounds like pretty heavily you know the compare the you know what's the 1176 with all the buttons in yeah. like i do that a lot on room sounds and you know again transient designers you can knock the transients down so that it it sounds right and i just can't get away from as as a uh, you know mixing on in pro tools the kramer pi plugin mm-hmm. man that that i don't think i could mash a drum room sound without that plug-in it's kind of amazing and it does a lot of the same thing but that that record those are live drum sounds yeah that's awesome yeah and it's it's interesting to hear you talk about using the transient designers on the room mics because i mean i've never done that and it it just kind of got me thinking for a second because like most of the time i've always associated transient designers as like close mic things and you know you want to shorten up the decay of something or you want to add a ton more snap to it right but for rooms it, that's interesting interesting approach so so you'll typically like do you find yourself um removing more of the transients on room mics or adding i'm sure it depends on the situation but a lot of times it's the length but when you're super smashing you know you'll get this initial hit that you don't always want whether it's on the kick drum or the snare or so a lot of times it's both. And and just not to, a lot of times you'll see on, you know, when you're doing a record in a drum room, you'll notice that a certain tempo works better in that drum room. And that's all because of the length of the decay. So once you figure something like that out, then you can use the transient designer to like, wow, 120 works in this room and 160 
clearly is too much. So you're, you're, you just have, the more you start to realize what's going on, the more further you can go with, with the length of the room. And I, I think that's the key to, and I like drums to sound like drums. So the mm. rooms and the overheads, if they're not right, then you're kind of sunk. Then you're going to sound like, you know, a kick and snare blasting through, which works on some stuff, but I like it to sound like a drum set. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I love the sound of that record. It's 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 like that sh- a shorter sounding room, but it, it which is funny because you said they were large rooms, but you hear it like it's 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 in and out. It's not like a, a washy thing that takes over the mix and muddies things up. So. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was very curious to learn more about that process, and I'm glad I did because learning about the transient designer—that's something I'm definitely going to try next time. I love that. <laughs> oh, it's a secret weapon for sure. For Not sure. so secret anymore. You know, there's <laughs> after you talking about that force field record. There was the song "Gonna Be Ready," which I haven't listened to that record in a while. Had a great time recording it, but there's in some of the breaks we recorded those drums in two separate places. And one of them, one of the rooms was huge and maybe it doesn't come out as much as I had hoped, but there's like the, the break. You can hear the kick drum at that point is like a huge 26 inch huge room. And I intentionally cut those in to make it sound really big. I, it probably isn't as dramatic as I'm making it, but if you listen close to that song, you'll hear two separate drum rooms on that one very cool love that i I have to listen to that again for sure um another thing about that record that i I thought was really cool is that um it seems to have a lot of like saturation all over it as well um like it's you know everything's kind of got some grit to it which is cool um so would that be something again that you would use during like the tracking stage or something that you would maybe add more in post i mean that it kind of goes both ways you know as as you're recording, you try to get it to sound the way you want it. So I try to leave as little for post as possible. Right? So you're making the record, you're adjusting. It kind of has to sound what you, how you want it to then. So I'm a big fan of distortion and saturation. I think that that was the big problem with, you know, when we switched from tape to Pro Tools. Not that you know, I don't think we, you know, they talk about tape saturation and yeah, it was there, but Pro Tools was, digital was so clean in the beginning. We didn't have all those saturation plugins and that's really what has made digital recordings way better in my my mind. And a lot of it is saturation. When I'm mixing, there's a saturation plugin on almost every, every channel. You have, you know, what's the, Man, the one from uh, Sound Toys. What's that one? Like the Decapitator. Yeah. I mean, that's a that gets a heavy, heavy rotation. But there's, I have like four or five saturation. The Saturn, my Fab Filter gets gets a lot of use. You just, you're not distorting things, so to speak, but you're just adding a little bit of saturation on literally almost every every plugin. PSP, Vintage Warmer gets a lot of use. Very cool. Yeah. There's just just all kinds of stuff. I know even like like Pro Tools comes with heat, right? So like a lot of people even use that as a something to have on every channel, that kind of thing. Haven't used it, but it's probably fine. Yeah, I mean, it's I think like Decapitator and all of those those tools there, they're they can definitely go much more extreme. Um, which hey, sometimes that's what you want, right? You want you want all that control and shaping and all that stuff. But a lot of times it's not. It's not extreme at all. It's just subtle. But if you took it off, you would go. Wow, that sounds really generic. And then you it's just little little things. Rarely do you absolutely notice that there's saturation on the channel. For sure. Yeah, I think saturation is like one of those tools that a lot of people are kind of afraid to commit to on the way in because they're just like, oh, I don't want to go too far and like paint myself in a corner with this. And there's like there can be that fine line of how much you push something. I suppose, you know, like you could just throw on like any sort of tape emulation plugin and in the most default setting, it's probably just not going to be noticeable, but over a whole mix, yeah. you're going to get some warmth out of it and all that kind of stuff, right? But it's like when you start to really push something, then obviously you start to notice the difference, right? But 
yeah, there's like, as far as, as far as knowing like how not to overdo it, what's your approach there? That's just experience. I mean, I've overdone it many, many, many times. I've underdone it. You know, it's, I mean, there is no, there is no other way around it other than you try it, you screw it up, you get it right sometimes and you, you think you've nailed it. You're like, oh, I got this now. Wow, that record sounds amazing. The next three after that sound terrible. You're like, what did I, what happened? Like the magic snare drum we always talk about. <laughs> wow, that snare sounds incredible on whatever record. And then you've tried it 10 records after that and it never wins again. You're like, I, I don't know. The same thing goes for mixing. Sure, you start narrowing down the dynamics of how many times you miss, but <laughs> it's an experience learning process. People tell me all the time, like, what's the magic plugin? I just tell them to, like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. I could tell you every plugin I use, it wouldn't sound like my mix. It just yeah. wouldn't. I love that. <laughs> No, it's true. It's like where everyone's uh, everyone's chasing that thing that's going to make their mixes better. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier with speakers, right? It's like people think yeah. they're going to get the better speaker. It's going to make their mix sound better, or they're going to they're going to become better mixers as a result of it. Um, but yeah, there is there is really no magic bullet with this stuff. It does come down to that experience for sure. I get the magic plugin question a lot, and it just now I laughed before I used it. Just kind of used to irritate me. Like, come on, really? Now I'm like. I'll tell you any plugin you want. What? Ask me what what's what channel I'm using. What plugin? And I'll tell you because <laughs> it just isn't going to be even my settings. It's just not going to work because so much of mixing is the levels. I just I couldn't say enough about the level as being an important part of mixing. It just it really is. Yeah. Well, let's dig into that a little bit then too, because I, I agree with you that levels are important. So when you're when you're referring to that, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, e everything. Like you you mentioned the guitars and and how loud they were, and relative to you know, let's say the snare drum. But if you really if you listen to it, they're probably you know they're about the same probably. You know, and you pick the things that you want to poke out. And there's a lot of rides, right? So at certain points, yes, the guitars are way louder because that's what I want you to listen to. Mm -hmm. At other points, it's the kick and the snare. So the guitars are down. Another point, it's the guitar, uh, sorry, the vocal or the bass lick. So there's all kinds of rides that are happening to decide what what it is you're listening to, which is the key to if If I just made everything the same all the time and they're all in their their perspective eq zones it'd be boring it just you wouldn't have a great time with it so it's things are moving constantly there's rides there's you know bumps here it goes down there people always telling me what was there's a famous quote from somebody i can't remember but the quote was make everything louder than everything else I was like, yeah, <laughs> I've heard that before. It's like, man, the bass needs to come up. I'm like, well, the bass can come up, but that just means something else has to come down. It, you can't just, you know, turn the bass way up. It's just not going to work. You kind of have to, it's a give and take. So it's the level. What, what's more important here? Is the bass or the kick more important? You know, you can EQ it out. Sure. You want your kick drum to sound like a glazed ham? Yeah, then the the bass can be jacked up with with no top end, and all the top end is on the kick drum. That's fine, but if you want them to kind of cohabitate, you need to they need to pick their moments, and levels are all about it. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, if everything's loud, then nothing is loud. It's the worst. <laughs> I love that you mentioned kick drum sounding like glazed hams. Uh, that's a great great name for like a sample or something like that. <laughs> the I mean, sometimes. <laughs> I mean, I. Whatever. I'm sure there's a lot of Metallica fans, and I, I like a lot of Metallica, but sometimes those kick drums, I'm like, what is that thing? I, it, all I can think of is a glazed ham. 
<laughs> Love it. <laughs> well, you talked about how, um, you know, a big part of your sound is like committing on the way in, especially for like the projects that you're engineering and then eventually mixing. Like you said that by the time you get to the mix, there's really not a whole lot to do because you've kind of already baked in the sounds. Um, so ultimately, like with those kind of projects, like how long do you find it normally takes you to finish a mix? I mean, less than a day. I mean, it, it all depends. I, with Pro Tools and the way it is now, all, almost all of my, whatever, whoever sends it to me, I can probably do just about anything in six or seven hours, maybe eight. Yeah. But I, I always will do it, and I never send it out until I've come back the next day anyway and kind of had a, a moment away from it. But it doesn't take nearly as long as it used to. Yeah, I mean, it, you're not recalling consoles anymore, that's for sure. So. <laughs> How great Pro Tools. It, we didn't call it recalls, we called it remixing. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it'll be better or worse, it just won't be the same. Yeah, right on. So then in the end, as far as knowing like when you're done a mix, what ultimately makes a great mix to you? Like, How do you know when you're done that mix? It just feels good, and the song has energy, and it moves, and... You know, things are doing, I, I don't know if I'm ever done, honestly. I You can just keep going, and I've over-mixed plenty of songs. That's why I, I just, you get to a point, and again, it's experience, where you just, you feel like things are doing what they're supposed to, and the, you're, you're benefiting the song. Like, you're, a mix just serves the song. And I know, I, I was engineering for a guy named Rob Schnaff for many years, and I, I got that from him. Like, well, what about the mix? He's like, it just has to serve the song. And I, I've incorporated that into my, my whole thing because it's true. When you feel like you're doing what the song is asking for, that's when you're done. Love it. That's a great, great, great spot to wrap up there for sure. Well, Doug, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this and, uh, you know, I think you gave us a lot of really great things to, to think about. Um, if people want to learn more about you, maybe follow you online or maybe even potentially work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? They can follow me at DougBameMusic.com. Little website that I haven't kept up in years, but <laughs> <laughs> you can drop me a line, email, or, uh, you know, just send me an email. DougBameMusic at gmail.com. I, I get people that send me stuff stuff all the time i'm happy to talk about or mix your stuff awesome well again thank you for for doing this really appreciate it oh thank you i had a lot of fun so that was my interview with doug bame and i really enjoyed that i love his approach to making records it's just about keeping things simple you know, like when he was talking about guitar tones, I kind of expected that he was going to say he had this big elaborate chain or whatever, but then he's like, no, I just use a 57 and just, you know, change up one side versus the other. And, you know, I think that, that these are little details that just go a really long way, but they're so simple to do, right? So we don't need to often like overcomplicate things with like crazy chains, you know, sometimes just change a guitar. That's it. You know, like that, that might be the solution to all of your problems. And I love that he addressed that here today. Uh, you know, just really making things simple. So I love learning about his guitar process. And I also love learning about some of the little tricks that he does to get cool room sounds when it comes to drums. And I love his technique of using a transient designer on the room mics. I thought that that was really cool. And even just the idea of just using non-matching pairs for room mics. I thought that that was a really cool idea too. Uh, you know, you get taught that, oh, you should always have room mics be the exact same. And that's because mic companies want to sell you two of the same mics. So I think it was great to hear him kind of talk about how sometimes just changing up one mic versus the other gives you this extra character that can make a mix sound really exciting and unique. So um, yeah, I love these little things little hacks that can go a really long way in terms of making your mixes sound more exciting. So I hope that you enjoyed that too. And I hope that you got a lot out of this episode too. And if you're the type of person who is currently struggling to get your mixes to sound better, and you're not sure what steps to be taking to get the results that you're ultimately after, like if you're chasing guitar tones or drum tones, and your recordings don't sound anything like your favorite records, and you're just not sure what steps to be taking, 
Well, that is something that I would love to help you out with. And inside of my coaching program, Amplitude, that's exactly what I work with my students on. Inside of that program, I work one-on-one with you to help you get your recording sounding just as good as your favorite records. And we walk through the tools to use, the steps to take, what to be listening for, how to dial in your settings. And we go back and forth on your mixes until they are sounding at a level where you are just super excited about them and ready to share them with the world. So if you're currently working on a specific project, whether it's a, a couple singles or an album or something like that, and you're looking for help along the way, then definitely make sure to check out Amplitude. If you go to masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude, you'll find all the details there. And then I'd love to hop on a quick call with you to go through the program and give you a little bit of a behind the scenes tour so you can see what it would look like inside and how it can help you out. So once again, visit masteryourmix.com forward slash Amplitude, and you can find all the details there. All right, guys, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at masteryourmix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.